0: Welcome back, it's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Technology in school is supposed to make teachers' lives easier and students' lives easier. But you know, with technology, that's not always the case, especially when it comes to the accessibility experience. Watascawan, community reporter Anna Kim has some gripes with how technology's been rolled out in the education system. Hey, good morning, Anna, nice to chat with you again today.
1: Good morning. It is good to chat about certain things, and I think that this is an important one.
0: It's real talk. It's real talk. And real talk is important, especially as people with disabilities encountering real events in the real world. Our personal experiences really matter. So what's been your experience with technology in the classroom?
1: It has been slow in a way. I just finished my high school career. I just wrote my my physics 30 diploma for, you know, those Albertans who went through that struggle oh, with me.
0: congratulations.
1: Thank you. It was, it, it's it been an interesting 12 years. And I, yeah, I have some gripes with some of the ways that technology was accessed personally for me, because I love my teachers. Some of them, you know, you get good and bad teachers. <laughs> those good teachers, they really tried to embrace my needs, saying, you know, I, I don't need a whole lot. I just need digital versions of my textbooks and some, some large print, well, not some, all of my things in large print, so, you know, up to size 18 font. They embraced it, and I appreciate them, at least the good teachers did. The school system in general had a hard time realizing that there aren't just two sides of a spectrum. There isn't just the, the those who need special education and that extra help and those who are just the, the, the students who don't need a whole lot of accommodations. It has a hard time compromising with those students in the middle who need certain things for their education so that they can thrive, but don't need everything. And so I have had the worst struggle in my high school experience, and some in my lower junior high, trying to advocate for the use of technology. So I went and wrote my diplomas. I wrote four of them this year, and it was intense. And I was not able to get a digital version of this exam, in which I know they have, because they've been rolling them out slowly to almost everyone. And I wasn't able just to get A digital version of this exam. I I was given the big print form, which is on one foot by two foot sheets of paper, which some people need. And I commend all of those who use that paper because it's a little loud. It's just, I I created a bit of a windstorm every time I flipped a page Mm. and I felt and, and I wasn't put in a separate room. I was put in a room with all the other kids who received accommodations. And I'm over here in the corner with three desks around me, making a windstorm and being really loud every time I turn a page. And I'm bothering the kids who need a quiet space, who have these certain accommodations. And there's just a struggle to find that happy medium. And for those who are not strong advocates and have a really hard time time voicing what they need it's hard for them to Mm. receive the best education that they can because they don't know how to approach it and if it's something that is not dealt with very quickly and it just keeps pushing on to you know extending to, oh, maybe you'll get it next time, then they kind of lose their voice and their confidence in trying to advocate for themselves.
0: Yeah, it's it, it becomes an unfair onus, right, that certainly learning to advocate is an important part of the development and developing your life with a disability uh, prospect, but it's also deeply unfair that the onus is perpetually put on people. And Anna, what's also unfair is that you didn't create these systemic barriers, but you're the ones who lived them, and you're certainly not being paid by the school board or the ministry education but what improvements would you suggest
1: i think that trying to educate not you know your teachers definitely but those who are higher up because that seems to be where more of the issues lie you know i can't get a digital version of a provincial exam even though i've been talking about it for the past year and a half since I started writing diplomas and that's what I've experienced in my classroom and those who control a lot of these things seem to only have this mindset of there's one over here who doesn't really need anything and then one over here and who needs everything and they can't just be happy with that medium so trying to educate as to what technology can do you know having having digital versions of things being able to change the contrast on for online prints do, do that educate yeah. just a little bit Yo, yeah. educate the educators do what i have to do bring in people who are strong advocates to say these are what of, of varying degrees and say these are what people need this is this is how things should be adjusted and it's just, it's such a slow process. I understand that in big things, things take time, but at the same time, how long has education been a thing and how long yeah. have we had to deal with this? Yeah,
0: it's, it's the idea that this requires leadership and it requires leaderships who understand some of the unique challenges that go along with disabilities. Ideally, those leaders in the ministries and in the school boards and in schools would have disabilities. But if you perpetually create barriers in their entire educational experience, people with disabilities will never be in those decision-making roles, and the problem just continues and continues and continues.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's a never-ending loop. And so, personally, I think it has to start with the schools, the the local schools, and trying to find students who have a voice and have that confidence and those advocacy skills is actually quite hard, I find, nowadays. People are standing up and and voicing their opinions, but it seems to be that there's a, a smaller group of people who are really You know, they they have their gripes with systems or with processes, and they just can't quite articulate or voice what they they have because of the fear of of being shut down. And I I know this. I went through through that whole experience of trying to figure out how to advocate for myself because I was always kind of told that, oh, well, that's selfish. Why would you do that? You don't need something different. And it caused some issues. And so if we can start with the students – And then go to the schools and then go to the school board and just it's a a very slow process, but slowly, slowly bringing that education out of the the little circle that is, you know, students and teachers and trying desperately to educate those who are outside that circle.
0: Anna, there's kind of a common thread through this report today. It's not just your own personal educational experiences. It's unique opportunities that can help children with growth and development, including an event taking place in Red Deer called Mess is Best. That's a sensory-friendly event going on through February and March. Why did this one jump out to you? Why did a sensory-friendly event jump out to you?
1: I am a very tactile person. Uh, That is just... That's how I roll. I can't wear certain clothes because of how they feel, and I can just feel every fiber on them. And I've had to slowly grow and learn and understand why I am that way and understand, you know, why I can't eat mushrooms because they have this just certain feel, which I can't, I love the flavor, can't get with it. And so starting to develop those, those abilities those you know fine motor skills the learning how to differentiate between different textures and learning what you like and don't like that starts just like anything at the youngest ages of you know when you start to develop cognitive ability of my nephew who's who's slowly learning how to to walk around and and explore he's touching everything because he wants to he wants to know the world around him and so it's important for for sensory activities to develop that whole, you know, side of, of child development, understanding the world around you, seeing what happens when you do an action, right? If you go paint on the walls at home, you may end up, you know, <laughs> yeah. in timeout corner. <laughs> you if you go paint late. on the walls yeah. of this, this thing in Red Deer, you'll, you'll end up with messy clothes,
0: what what uh you're almost talking about my autobiographical experience over there a little bit of writing on the walls i thought i was an artist at a young age uh what are some of the like particular activities that are being put on offer here for kids to actually play with their senses
1: the things that you can't do at home right all the all the messy things water is is a big one for for that water toys because you know that's limited to bathtubs and maybe pots and pans but Tubs of water, things like you know Orbeez, all the all the fun, soft, sensory things. It's it's about mess, so you know, mud and paint and all the the joys that kids want to embrace at home in an environment where they're able to to socialize with other young kids and parents can socialize and not you know be sent to timeout for having to or enjoying using paint
0: everywhere. Messes <laughs> best, best is taking place in Red Deer with sessions in February and March. You can register by visiting fsca.ca, fsca.ca or call 403-343-6400. 403-343-6400. Okay, that's a little bit tactile, but Anna, you've also got something to play with the ears, something a little bit more musical, Gershwin's Music Key. One of the really cool things getting to know you here over the last six months or so is that you love music, but what makes this event a little bit different from other classical performances?
1: I kind of went into this report with a little bit of the mindset of of Family Day because that's coming up in February. Mm. And families always need something to do together. And so this is a great way to introduce young kids to music because it's only 50 minutes. It's not, you know, an opera or a symphony or a a live production, but it's only just under an hour and it caters to everyone it has that that classical gershwin music which always tells a story I, I love gershwin and then they have the actors on stage who are playing out the story in which the music is telling and so as much as it's an audio experience and you can hear the story in the music it's also a little bit of a visual one too where you can see the story and it's great for kids to understand that music has story that there's a a meaning to it and this is just a great introduction to young kids and how to get them in love with the arts i'm a little biased i love the arts that's because <laughs> you know my mom took me to to the nutcracker as a kid and i fell in love with the music but some kids don't necessarily enjoy seeing pretty shiny dancing blobs on a stage and listening to music so this is much more interactive and a great way to introduce them to that whole new sphere of what the live arts is like.
0: It's taking place at the Edmonton Winspear Center. What do you like about that venue?
1: Oh, I cannot talk about the Winspear Center enough. It is, it is an acoustic glorious Building, I don't know how to explain it. It's just, I had <laughs> the the amazing opportunity of going to see Hamel's Messiah uh, there. I got to, to see it with my choir. And it's just, you sit anywhere in that place and the sound reverberates off the walls. It's built for music. And so it just intensifies everything. And it's almost, I don't know if this is the case, but it's almost like there's more emotion when it's in something like the Winspear Center just because of how it sounds. It's just, it's gorgeous and I, I can't i can't talk about it enough it, <laughs> it just sounds amazing
0: in the world of music venue matters there's no doubt about that and that's why great music halls will blow away arenas and stadiums forevermore. yeah 100 super super cool hey anna thank you for putting together this theme today i i love it so thank you for sharing your own experiences and thinking about the experiences of other super super cool have a great day enjoy the next couple weeks
1: Thank you. You too. Talk to you
0: later. That is Anna Kim, Community Reporter in Wetaskiwin, Alberta. Gershwin's Music Key is taking place on Saturday, February 17th at Edmonton's Windspear Center. For more information, I'm just going to give you the phone number here 7804281414. That's 7804281414. All right. That's Community Reporter. Anna Kim, in one minute, Laura Bain has the entertainment report, but first, Samsung has big ideas for anti-glare screens, Mike Debuski fires up another edition of Tech Trends.
2: From ABC News Tech Trends, Samsung's brightest OLED screen ever is in its latest S95D television. And the company claims it's the first TV to fully get rid of glare.
0: This is not new. People have seen glare-free televisions before. They're usually just a matte finish. And those matte finishes tend to disperse the glare, not get rid of it.
2: Dan Cooley, editor-at-large of CNET, says Samsung isn't using a matte finish, but instead a specialized coating.
0: Samsung's new proposal Proprietary technology doesn't appear to be one of those fuzzy matte screens. It doesn't change the off-angle viewing, and it gives you this ability to basically make those lights behind you go away and not show up as hot spots.
2: Outside of the anti-glare coating, the TV gets the same quantum dot OLED technology shared by other Samsung TVs, and the whole thing is just 11 millimeters thick. The S95D is available in sizes up to 77 inches. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubuski, ABC News.
0: 77 inches is one heck of a big TV. Let's turn to the world of entertainment. A new documentary called The Greatest Night in Pop explores the making of We Are the World. Laura Bain, this documentary jumped out to you.
3: Yeah, it sure did. Maybe one to watch on your 77 inch television. (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) My personal TV is not 77 inches. (laughs) I live in a condo, I don't have that kind of square footage.
3: Me neither, Dave. Um, Yeah, this is called The Greatest Night in Pop and uh, came out on Netflix yesterday, so I checked it out last night. So basically, it tells the story of when in 1985, 46 of the most popular musicians at the time, such as Michael Jackson, Cyndi Lauper, Bruce Springsteen, got together and over the course of one night, recorded the song We Are the World to raise funds for famine relief in Africa. Now, the documentary uses a mix of archival footage and new interviews. And I think we have a trailer that we're going to play that just needs a little bit of setup.
0: We sure do. Four voices are heard speaking, the most notable being Lionel Richie and Bruce Springsteen. There's a montage of footage from the studio production of We Are the World, along with photos of the artists mixed with modern day interview footage.
2: I received this call from Harry Belafonte, and he wants to do some kind of a song for famine relief in Africa. Basically what he said was, I need you. We just thought we'd pull together as many artists as we could and figure it out.
3: It was just a wish list. He said yes without knowing who was gonna be on it.
0: Bob Dylan, Stevie Wonder, Paul Simon, Cindy Lauper, Pat Midler,
2: Billy Joel, Steve Perry, Willie Nelson, I think we have Tina, Sheila E., Diana Ross, everybody was there. Laura,
0: pretty, pretty iconic moment in music history.
3: Yeah, it sure was. So I think that a lot of folks would have heard this song or seen the video. And, you know, I went and I kind of rewatched that video this morning and the end product, it sounds really great. It's really polished. And it doesn't give you a sense of kind of the circumstances that made this possible which you know basically harry belafontein was inspired by band-aid in the uk and he wanted to do something similar but felt that it should be led by black artists so he recruited quincy jones lionel richie michael jackson and stevie wonder uh to write this song and kind of 10 days before the recording they still didn't have the song written so this is really down to the wire. And then they undertook this sort of Herculean effort to convince all of these 46 artists to get together in a recording studio like after the 1985 American music award ceremony that night to kind of get in their separate limos and go to this recording studio, because that was of course the time when everybody was going to be in the same place. And they worked through the night. They started after midnight and they worked like all the way through to the next morning and artists were tired. Some artists were skeptical about the project. There were artists that got frustrated and walked out and never made it onto the project. So it was really cool to see the behind the scenes and the, different personalities that that came out. And especially, I found it really neat, some of the artists that, you know, they sound great in the final track, but they actually felt really insecure and shy about their parts because Mm. it was sort of being done Mm. on the fly. And you see these major artists that don't typically work together, kind of figuring things out in the moment and developing these harmonies. So, um, yeah, I I would highly recommend watching the doc. And I I think I would recommend watching it and then after that listening to or watching the We Are The World song just for that contrast. Oh,
0: uh, you know what? I, I'm, I'm. you I think you've made the business case to me here, Laura, because this does sound cool, and I love the idea of artists collaborating, like like that, and, and to sort of, and to sort of capture the collaboration and hear the story. To me, that's fascinating because because it happens a lot in music today, but maybe not quite with the purpose of We Are the World.
3: Yeah, and this was sort of something that I was thinking about and, uh, you know, a question that I have for you and and I don't know if I quite know the answer, but whether you think that something like this could happen together, do you think that the biggest pop stars of our time could come together for a cause and put out something like this?
0: I I do. It wasn't that long ago that uh, a bunch of artists got together and covered What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, although when I say it wasn't that long ago, it was probably about 20 years ago. Right. (laughs) So, Maybe <laughs> I'm dating myself as always as uh, someone who used to be deeply in touch with pop culture, but Laura, I, I believe with modern with modern recording technology, and I also believe with a lot of artists being more socially conscious, maybe it's not to the degree of getting forty four artists together, but I could definitely see collaboration at a smaller scale, maybe a handful five to ten uh, picking up united causes here and and I, and I feel like it could really it could really go somewhere.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I, I sort of feel like prior to watching this documentary, I thought, no, it probably couldn't happen today because so many things are different. And I do think that perhaps kind of the end product would, would be different because, you know, they had this kind of powerful release where radio stations played it all at the same time. And of course, you know, we've got social media, we're not using cassette tapes. Ever. You know, a lot of things are different. But when I understood that this really wasn't, you know, this was driven by a couple of people um, who really had to work hard to bring all of these egos and bring all of these personalities together. I thought, yeah, you know, if we did have a couple of artists that were motivated to do that, I think this could happen again. And, um, you know, this is a whole other topic, but I think for me personally, I I do like to see artists using their platform for positive change.
0: Laura, I didn't have this in the intro, but where's it streaming?
3: Oh, it's on Netflix. uh, And it does have audio description and it's an hour and 37 minutes or so.
0: Digestible. Laura, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. Thanks, Dave. That's Laura Bain at the entertainment desk. Coming up after the break, a couple of news stories and the regional news update. And Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.